University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5. We are making our final turn in this series, Start With Why. We spent the last eight weeks examining why we do what we do. It's not enough for us to just know how and what we do, because we know that we're going to gather on Sunday morning for Sunday school and for worship. We know that we will gather for various committees and teams We know that we'll have children and their families converge on our campus for Mother's Day Out and Family Tree Cafe. We know that we will upkeep our buildings and supply our staff with jobs, but why do we do all of these things? What is our purpose? What is our drive? We've written a fine set of core values. We are God-centered, rely on the Bible's authority, embrace equality, engage in discipleship, and love others, but do We value these things. Does our why drive us each day and equip us to do the work of God and inspire us to live out the dream that God has given our faith community? Why do we do what we do? And so we come to our final core value of loving others. And what a charming attribute for us to strive for. But what does that actually look like day to day? For this, we turn to Philippians. Now, what's the context of Philippians? Most biblical scholars would say that Paul is writing because of a great deal of disunity within the church. Big surprise. That's why we have two-thirds of the New Testament, because we don't get along with each other. But Philippians is different, because Paul is a lot more mild-mannered and gentle with the Philippians congregation. Some would say that this is his most beloved congregation, And if you don't believe that, turn to the book of Galatians or the book of Corinthians, and you're like, oh, Paul really didn't like those people. (laughs) But he really loves the Philippians. And so Paul is writing to call them to have one mind, to be a beloved community together. We're going to do this somewhat out of order. We're going to read uh, verses 5 through 11 and then come back to the beginning of chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationship with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Philippians came from uh, the name of Alexander the Great's father Philip of Macedonia as to be expected of the Maternal father of Alexander, Philip conquered this city and renamed it for himself. He was a really humble guy. One can see why Alexander's legacy proclaimed that he was, in fact, the son of Zeus, the supreme god of the Greeks, not Philip. And when Romans took over um, this region, they made Philippi a retirement garrison for their military men. 
It was therefore a place of Roman aristocrats, Roman culture, and the imperial cult worship of Caesar. And the Greco-Roman culture is very interesting because it's helped shape the way that Western civilization still lives today. And so in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the gods were revered. From Poseidon to Athena, the gods were viewed as these reckless beings that did whatever they wanted. They had control of our lives, and the people viewed the gods in such a way as powerful beings who merely were waiting to take advantage of us lowly people. And so there was this common phrase among the people of the day, it is the will of the gods. When life was fruitful, it must have been the will of the gods that we have pleased them to give us a good harvest. If life was awful, we must have done something to the gods in order to invoke them to do such thing. But above all, the gods rules, the gods were in control, the gods gave you life or gave you death. So when Paul is writing to Philippians, this historic Greco-Roman city, one would understand what it means to be the Son of God. His audience would immediately begin to grasp what Paul is talking about, especially when Paul says that God, the true God, came and dwelled among us. How many times have the Greco-Roman stories that we've read in literature growing up talked about the gods coming and dwelling among us, Zeus tricking men into doing things they shouldn't, Zeus tricking women into doing things they shouldn't. But Paul chose this radical turn in this moment in verse 8 because he says that God chose humility. God chose servitude. What? Why would God choose to become a slave, to become a servant. God is supposed to impose God's might. God is supposed to let humankind know who is boss. God makes our lives miserable a great depending on God's tendency and feelings for the given day. God is supposed to be the very antithesis of a servant. But Paul says that God became flesh. He became human. He lived and breathed and ate just like us. God wanted to experience what we feel, what we live, what we do each day, and God chose the form of a servant. This is backwards. Let that sink in for, for just a second. And so when you really consider the life of Jesus, Paul's words are spot on. Jesus did not come to make our lives miserable, to take advantage of the weakness compared to his greatness, to wreak havoc in our lives. Instead, Jesus came to serve us. From his humble beginnings of being born in a stable to a peasant virgin, uh, to her carpenter husband being raised in the backwood country of Nazareth under the thumb of Romans imperialism, Jesus chose a life of service. From his willingness to live life of a, of a homeless man, traveling the countryside, going to these in and out cities, not to the fashy and fast, fast, good gracious, if I can say the word I'm trying to say, flashy and popular places, Jesus went to these no-name towns. And what would baffle us is that Jesus didn't spend his time with the uppity-up of society. Instead, Jesus surrounded himself with the poor, the outcasts the marginalized, the unfavorable. This is how he spent his life. And in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, tells us that in the hours before he is about to be arrested, Jesus does the most unthinkable thing. It says that he had a meal with his disciples, and after the meal, he took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, 
and got down and began to wash the feet of the disciples. This was the act of a slave, of a servant. He could have asked one of the really annoying disciples to do this for him, but instead Jesus got down and washed the feet of these men. Every single woman in here would raise their hand and scream amen at the thought of touching another man's foot is the grossest thing that you can consider. What is it about our feet as guys that are absolutely disgusting? They stink. We don't know how to cut our toenails the right way. And imagine in Jesus' day, they're walking around in sandals all the time with bacteria and grime and dirt building up from the street. You know their feet were awful, and yet Jesus chose to wash each of their feet. He washed the feet of Thomas, who would doubt his resurrection. He washed the feet of James and John, the two brothers that would so self-righteously fight over who would sit next to him in heaven. He comes to Peter, who would so famously say that he did not know Jesus when Jesus is being mocked and spat upon and beat. And yet Peter says to him that, you can't wash my feet, let me wash your feet, Lord. And then Jesus comes to the very man who will commit the most despicable act in human history, a man named Judas Iscariot, and Jesus will wash his feet. But then Paul tells us in this text here that Jesus showed the utmost of his servitude. Because in just a few hours, Jesus would be arrested, he would be spat upon, he would be beat, he would be falsely accused... Uh, The the scripture tells us that they used a cat of nine tails to flog and scourge Jesus. Imagine a whip when the ends had glass and bone in it. So as they went into Jesus' flesh, it's literally pulling muscle and marrow and blood, everything out of him. The beating that Christ endured before the cross should have killed him. And as if that wasn't enough, they put a cross beam on his back and forced him to walk the streets. When he reached the top, after being mocked, they would take his hands and they would nail him to a cross, dislocating his other shoulder to nail the other hand in place. Not exactly what the gods were known for. Not a glorious and power-hungry-filled image of what the gods had done before now. Jesus chose service. So what do we do with this? It's a fascinating thing that that Paul is preaching here to the Philippian church. Most of us would say, we agree, Jesus is awesome, thank you for your sacrifice. So what? What do we do with all this? Well, go back to verse 1. Paul writes this at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. I'm guessing that nearly 99.9% of people in this space have a smartphone. Unless you have a flip phone and you're trying to stay off the grid, we certainly understand. But most of us have some sort of smartphone. And I'm not a huge app guy. There's people that have hundreds of apps on their phones. I like a simple amount of apps. And the main reason is because I don't want to have to manage all of the notifications that pop up on my phone. So I've pretty much turned off all notifications on my apps, with the exception of things that really matter, like alerts of my favorite team's scores or weather updates or major news updates. 
But of course, occasionally, my news update apps send me notifications that really are not that important. Like this week, I got a prompt that Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande's engagement is off, and the couple now hates each other. I got a notification that Meghan and Prince Harry are visiting New Zealand because that then gives me permission to live on in this world, as if that matters. In Texas, a live boa constrictor was found in a Goodwill donation container. Okay, that is worth telling me about. Because I imagine how fast that employee climbed up the walls when they found that snake. But then I get other notifications. Like a notification of a man walking into a Jewish synagogue and murdering 11 people in cold-blooded murder. 189 people die in a plane crash 13 minutes after takeoff in Indonesia. 14 million people are facing famine in Yemen. That's urgent news. That's something that should stir me to act. You see, what Paul is writing here, he is writing with a sense of urgency. What is the urgent message? If you've gotten anything out of all this following Jesus, Paul says, if you've gotten anything from his love, if it's made any difference in your life, if you have any community with the Spirit of God, if you have any heart, if you care at all, then do me a favor, he says. Whatever he's about to say is of the utmost importance. That's a good therefore if you're looking for a good use of a therefore. It's an if-then clause that he's writing here. Paul says, if you care at all about unity in Jesus, if you care at all about God's comfort of love that he's given you, if, if the Spirit of God dwells within you, if that matters at all, if you have even the ounce of tenderness and compassion, that's a big if. And remember, Paul is writing in response to some matters of discord and conflict within the Philippians church. He's urgently calling them to return back to whatever unites them, the Spirit of God that has called them to faith, the same Savior that gives them life, the same God who shows them mercy. Paul is urging them. So the big if then leads to the then. In verse 2 he says, Make my joy complete, by having the same mind. That's a curious phrase, being like-minded. He's calling them to this deep sense of unity. He's calling them to share a mind, to share a love of God, to share the same spirit. But then he isn't finished yet because he says this in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself not looking to your own interest, but each of you looking to the interest of others. Remember, Paul is writing to the predominant Greco-Roman culture. While people revered the gods, this is also the same culture that produced Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedonia, Leonidas of Sparta, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Mark Antony. These are figures who are the very personification of arrogance and self-centeredness. The Greco-Roman world was one of life. It was one of indulgence and fulfillment. It was a culture that lived richly and poor lived in the shadow of the rich. Money bought happiness and power. Intellect and rationale were the highest standards. Socrates once observed the unexamined life is not worth living. Epicureanism 
regarded the pleasure of, as the sole ultimate good and the pain as sole ultimate evil. So it is this mantra that we get, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. So how can we imagine Paul writing to them, calling them to eradicate conceit and selfishness? How would that be received? This is too much of an abnormal and unpopular message in our culture. The American culture is a me-first culture, where self-centeredness is the new normal. As one psychologist put it, societal trends have drifted away from an emphasis on community and common good and moved towards a need to take care of self, to protect oneself, to perfect oneself, even to the point of self-aggrandizement. See, most of us would probably take an involuntary shrug when we hear this, because of course, we're not selfish or self-centered. But I will put myself out there to say that I have blind spots in my life, areas that I don't see because of my cognitive ability to think the best of myself. And I would dare say that the American culture, we as Americans have a blind spot for selfishness, and pride, and self-centeredness. Everything about our culture is about bending towards our needs, providing for us, meeting our needs at the right place without any inconvenience for ourselves. We've become a culture of instant gratification. We demand the best food, the best shopping, the best internet usage, the best cellular signal, the best relationships, the best work and cars at the time and pace that we demand it. We are so easily moved to temporary discomfort if it doesn't fit into our worldview. And we're a culture marked by cynicism, accustomed, unaccustomed to hard work and, and, and fleeting after this empathy for people facing more difficult circumstances than we face. And before we begin to, to really uh, demonize the American culture, the church has to fix itself too. It's simple. We are a people who've called them to, to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to live in the mind of Christ. And so Paul is, is fighting this, not this new thing the church is facing. Even the disciples argued amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' response to them was, instead of who would be the greatest among you, consider who would be the greatest servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Instead of fighting to be the most humble, we tend to fight for what's in it for us. Instead of putting others before ourselves, we choose to fulfill our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, and build up our own little kingdoms. Instead of serving, we expect others to do what is needed, even if we have to give of ourselves, we complain about it the whole time. Instead of putting on the mind of Christ, we fight against it with all of our might. And, and I don't say these things out of condemnation or self-righteousness because I battle this within myself. It is a plea for us to stop and consider what our motivation is for living. What our motivation is as a faith community. Are we striving to have the mind of Christ so how do we fix this? Well, Andy's not going to stand up here and give a cute three-point sermon with an easy resolution. The resolution is difficult. Because the resolution is for us to turn back 
to Christ, to the life and teachings and ministry and death or resurrection of Jesus. It's not in ourself that we find the strength and motivation to live lives of servants. It is through Christ. We're not God. Yet God chose to dwell among us. God chose to show what God values most by serving us instead of asking us to serve God. Do you value others? Do you value children that are in your family, the children of God that are your friends and members of this faith community, your neighbors, your co-workers, that really annoying guy in the neighborhood, the troll on social media, the politician you don't see eye to eye with, the marginalized people of Baton Rouge, the unpopular people in our culture, the foreigner and the immigrant. Do you value these people in the same way you value yourself? The mind of Christ sees value in others. It always looks for the betterment of others, not just for the betterment of ourselves. And so as we turn to Christ, Christ calls us to live a life of service and self-giving. It's a life that calls us forth to find the practical ways each day to meet the needs around us, both in the simplistic ways of verbally affirming people each day and the opportunities where we can serve others in secret because we know how the Gospels teach us about serving other people so that we can receive a reward. Christ tells us to serve others as if no one will ever know it. So I challenge you this morning. Start by doing each day an act of service in secret. To seek ways to serve other people. And it begins in our lives individually, but it also begins in our lives as a faith community because we are called to be a community that serves one another. And that is so tough. (laughs) That's so tough when we have a history together when we've hurt each other's feelings, when we've broken each other's hearts, when we've looked across from each other in Sunday school classes and business meetings and and the like and thought just the worst possible things about each other. The church is a really messy family. But if we want to live lives of service, it begins here. It begins with each other. It begins with taking the things that have broken our hearts, the prideful moments that we have, and saying it's not worth it. Anger and fear and control and negativity, it's not worth it. What's worth it is to love each other, to care for each other, to seek to serve and outserve each other. Can you imagine a church that just... I'm going to serve you better than you. I'm just not going to say that to your face because that doesn't sound really humble. I'm going to serve and I'm going to serve and I'm going to serve. Could you imagine what this faith community could be like if what we personified was the love of Christ? I'm so far off the reservation in my notes, I don't even know where I am. Service. The God of the universe chose to come in the form of a servant. So what does that tell us about our faith journey? If our faith journey is personified by power and control and manipulation and fear, maybe we're not really following Jesus. Maybe we're following ourselves. 
And so my invitation to you this morning and to myself is this. May we seek to follow Christ. And so we want to invite you this morning to do something a little different. All the introverts in the room just said, I'm dying inside. <laughs> what he's going to ask of me. We're going to invite you to come to the table of the Lord this morning, the table of fellowship and community. But as you come, we want you to find a partner. Not your spouse, not your best buddy. Find someone else in this congregation you're not familiar with. And as you come to the table, receive Christ's fellowship and Christ's meal, you'll be handed, if you feel led, a wet towelette, a baby wipe, whatever doesn't sound gross to you. And the invitation is for you and your partner to go find a space in this worship sanctuary this morning and to clean each other's hands. Just a simple act of service. And as you clean this other person's hands, we encourage you to share a word of blessing or maybe pray a prayer of blessing on the person you're serving. If there's hurts that need to be fixed, let's fix those this morning. Let's fix it with love and service. So may we come to the table of Christ this morning. May we come to be served by Christ and to go forth as servants.